I'm Christy Archuleta, and you're listening to the most hated F word because finances is not the sole purpose. Like it or not, you, me, and everyone else, we all have a relationship with money. And for the most part, it's a complicated one. My name's Sean Maslick. Welcome to the Most Hated F Word Podcast. As a certified financial planner, I want to take you on a journey as we throw out the technical finance books and shift our focus towards our minds, our money, and what matters most. If you're looking to improve your relationship with money and build true wealth, you're in the right spot. Finances does not need to be the most hated F word. We've got a great conversation for you today with myself and Dr. Christy Archuleta. She is fantastic. During this episode, she shares so many valuable insights from her personal life, her life as a professor of financial planning, and her life as being a mother. We talk about how all of us have money stories that will and do impact our future financial outcomes. We also talk about how to set appropriate financial boundaries with our children. We then talk about how and when to start having conversations around money with our kids, the benefit of using solution-focused therapy techniques on our financial lives, and so, so much more. After this conversation, I hope you think about what are your money hopes. Please enjoy. Welcome back to the Most Hated F-Word podcast. Today, our guest is Dr. Christy Archuleta. She is a professor of financial planning at the University of Georgia, a speaker, an author, and one of the founders of the Financial Therapy Association. Originally trained as a psychologist, licensed marriage and family therapist, Dr. Archuleta has now established herself with an international reputation in the area of financial therapy. This area integrates psychological, rational, and financial factors affecting individuals, couples, and families' well-being. Since arriving in the field of financial therapy, Dr. Archuleta is making waves. She is the co-author of two books, has won numerous awards, and has well over 50 publications. Dr. Archuleta, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you. I am so excited to chat with you today. You're a co-author of a few of the books that have been a big perspective change for me when I think about money and the relationship of our mind. Can you just give us an idea... How did you come from, I presume you came from the family therapy side based on your training. If that's true, how did you come from family therapy to now financial therapy? Sure. Yeah. So when I talk about this, I kind of go back a little bit further than my marriage and family therapy training, Um, but it kind of starts with my own story around money. And as a high schooler, I was like, well, what do I want to do when I grow up? <laughs> and it seemed like all my friends knew exactly what they wanted to do and what they wanted to be. And I did not. And so I just remember sitting down with my high school guidance counselor and said, she's like, well, what do you like to do? And I said, well, I like to help people. And so we went through all of these different careers related to helping people and marriage and family therapy actually came up as one of them. And so I say, you know, what is that? What does a marriage and family therapist do? Well, they help people with their family relationships and their their marital relationships and their well-being. And I said, that's what I want to do. How do I become that? And so in undergrad, I was on a pathway and my major was family relations and child development because that was kind of the straight pathway into marriage and family therapy as a graduate student. But I also did a minor in business. Mm-hmm. And so that was actually kind of strange for a family relation and child development major mm-hmm. to do a business minor. And one of my points was, well, maybe someday I want to do a business. I'll have a business, a private business. Um, and if nothing else, I grew up on a farm. And money has always been a topic of interest because that's, you know, we talk about that all of the time within our farm family also probably own a farm business someday. So I'll utilize that in some way. And so at some point, I actually almost changed my major to accounting because I just loved accounting. And then I decided as a good undergraduate student that that was going to take me too long to graduate. (laughs) (laughs) So at about the same time, these marriage and family therapists came to our university and spoke. And one the fascinating things. I don't remember everything that they said, but I do remember that they said that money was a huge contributor to 
couples conflict, highly intensive couples conflict. And I thought, I just remember walking away from that thinking that is how I can merge my two interests together. And this is it. And so I began looking at different programs that offered both a financial planning program and a marriage and family therapy program and wound up as a graduate student in marriage and family therapy at Kansas State because they just were really open to kind of preparing me to work with families and finances and where most programs were open to that idea, but it didn't seem like they were quite as interested um, and work quite as closely with the financial planning faculty. And so I found a great fit there where they were really able to help foster me, foster my development in that area. But little did I know that that area really didn't exist mm-hmm. because within mental health, we don't really talk about money issues. So I was like immediately the person in our student financial therapy clinic or family therapy clinic that worked with money issues. Anytime anyone mentioned money issues, the clients came to me. So that was really cool. There was a couple other students that ended up coming through the program with the same interests. And so I think they got a little bit of a, a reputation at that point in time to being open to that. End up pursuing a PhD in marriage and family therapy coupled with a a certificate in financial planning. And so um, that's how I was able to emphasize the financial planning aspect within my graduate curriculum. And then um, found myself in a faculty position in the financial planning program at Kansas State. And right about that time is when we entered into building the Financial Therapy Association. We started connecting with people around the country that we're doing this work, but we didn't really know each other. We knew that there were some people in this area. And so we really wanted to figure out, is there a place, a forum? You know, Do we want to make a, a professional association? Or what is it that we want to do to help us come together as people who are in this area that are working to exchange ideas, to do research? And how does that form? So that was kind of a long response to your question, which you probably thought you were going to get a simple answer. But <laughs> there were a lot of different factors that went into play and into coming into the financial therapy area. I appreciate that background. I mean, we all have a story and those stories shape who we are. And uh, I guess our stories are rarely a soundbite. And uh, if we had more time, I bet you th- that answer could have taken three hours. It very well could have. No one probably wants to listen to the answer for three hours, but yeah, definitely. (laughs) You know, you you mentioned a few things that are piquing my interest. And the first thing is, I have to say, life is never linear, but you seem like you really knew from the moment when you found out about this, you want to help someone to be able to now see the marriage family counselor. And then that how money plays a big role in happiness or unsatisfaction, whatever the word is around couples. And then you went right towards that area of integrating money and therapy. So it seems like you really knew what you want and you just went and got it. And then that established the collaborated with the Financial Therapy Association. So what, what probably you, wasn't quite that smooth, yeah, but, but that is my, my recollection of how yeah. <laughs> you talked about your money story and growing up on a farm, you mentioned that you guys talked about money. Would you mind sharing about what was your money story as as a child in terms of you talked about money, but what emotions and feelings were around money when you guys had those conversations? That's a really good question. So I always like to brag on my parents. I'll probably spend time bragging on my parents (laughs) in this this, uh, little segment. Because I grew up on a farm in the 80s. And if anyone is familiar with farming in the 80s, where it's known for a huge recession and depression, it was really tough economical times. Lots of families lost their farms during this period of time. And so as a kid, I didn't really know that. I didn't actually realize that until I was older. And so my parents did a really good job of really setting boundaries around their own anxiety about money because I know that they were stressed. I never felt like I went without things, but I knew that I didn't have a lot of the same things that that other kids had. Right. But at the same time, I never felt like I was without or, or deprived. I'm sure I threw 
fits or whatever (laughs) about not getting what I wanted at times. But looking back, I don't feel like I ever really went without. But what I recognize now is that my parents were excellent at setting boundaries around the anxiety that they probably felt around money and trying to make their business work. Because a a lot of people don't associate farming with Mm -hmm. business, but it is a complex, a very complex business. They were one of the fortunate people who came out. They had made good, sound decisions and so came out strong. And they they still farm to this day. Oh, wow. So they're full-time Same farmers. Farm? Same farm. Wow. So yeah, they just, they moved houses, but... Uh, where is the farm? Which part of It's America? in Northwest Oklahoma. Okay. So I'm a, grew up in the Midwest, spent most of my life in the Midwest. Oklahoma, Kansas. Um, and my husband and I actually, we still help on the farm. Uh-huh. So every summer you will find us in June helping with wheat harvest. We actually do some of our own land that we, um, that we rent and we raise wheat on. And so you'll find me driving a semi truck and my husband driving wow. a combine uh-huh. <laughs> or sometimes we switch up roles, but we're out there with my parents. Um, and then whenever we go back, we're, we're usually out there. They're helping, doing something. Yeah. Yeah. So part of that is, you know, I talk about the boundaries, but then, you know, the older we got, the more they were able to kind of let us in on conversations. And so business meetings between my parents, because they were the people who were running the business, happened at the dinner table. Yeah. Um, or that happened in the pickup on the way from the house to the field or from field to field, you know, what decisions to make, how to make. I mean, I didn't know the nitty gritty of the mm-hmm. income and expenses or anything like that. But I recall my mom being a participant, a strong participant in the decision-making process. And my dad was was really the leader because he's kind of seen as the person who was in charge of the business as a decision maker too, but I saw them make decisions together. I saw them have conflict around money. But the thing that I also saw them do is that they worked through their conflict. They didn't let it set and fester. They might be upset about it and they might not agree, but then they were able to work it out. Mm. And they're pretty open about their financial situation with others. So they weren't afraid to talk about money with one another. And they, they came from very different money stories growing up, but together they made a strong parent. So that's really contributed to my, probably my own interest Mm -hmm. in helping people with money issues, with understanding how money affects relationships. Because one of the things that I quickly realized going into marriage and family therapy is that not everybody had a really strong family background like I did. Mm-hmm. Strong family dynamics like mine did. And so my goal became, I want to help people have strong relationships with one another because I know that that is a significant contributor to healthy functioning. And so that's really kind of part of my story is how that has impacted where I am today. And I, I use my family as a model of, you know, they did things fairly well. I always call them kind of textbook parents, uh, yeah. but they, I don't think they have a clue that they have that kind of impression, except for what I've told them, right? that they had a good impression on us. So, yeah. You know, that there's a, a lot of interesting things in there. The first one I, I kind of actually want to touch on is, so last week we released an episode with Dr. Ted Klontz, and he talked about family systems and having communication with your children around money. But you mentioned a lot of great things that your parents did, but something I want to touch on is the boundary setting that they did. Mm-hmm. So as parents, whether it's boundaries, even with a spouse or children, how does one start to create healthy boundaries around money with either their spouse or their children. Because I find that's one where, especially I'm a father of two young kids and Mm -hmm. we just want to do so much. I don't know. Do you have kids? I do. I have three. Three. Okay. (laughs) So you just want to do so much for your kids, but sometimes, you know, doing that knee jerk thing just to make them quiet down isn't creating a healthy boundary. So around money specifically, how would one in a family system create healthy boundaries or aspire to create those boundaries? Yeah, I think it's always aspirational, right? Because I'm constantly, it's like constant struggle (laughs) for my husband and I, like what's appropriate and what's a not. And, you know, our kids range in age from 13 to seven. 
And so what's appropriate to share with a 13-year-old is not necessarily appropriate to share with the seven-year-old. But yeah. sometimes it's like, all right, you ask a really great question. Now, how do we give that information to all of you in ways that you'll understand and that's appropriate and you're all sitting here at the same time. So so I think it's just, it's very aspirational and it's something that we're constantly working at. So I think it's something you have to constantly work at. But setting boundaries, I think, starts with this idea of being able to separate emotions from cognitive thinking, so rational thinking. And when it comes to money, it's money is such an emotionally charged issue that we have a really hard time separating the two. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why we see a lot of family issues around money because we get tied up, the money or the thinking and the emotion piece gets tied up with one another. And so we see financial dependence and financial enabling and financial enmeshment that are a result of an inability to set boundaries. And those boundaries are really the lack of setting them is because we can't separate the thoughts and the feelings. And so I think we have to do a lot of exploration. I know you've had several different guests on your podcasts already that are well known for digging into your story and everybody provides a different piece of the puzzle. So part of that is knowing yourself and knowing how you feel and how you react. And when a certain issue around money comes up, What's your comfortability level? Does it raise anxiety for you? And then kind of reflecting like, why is this causing anxiety for me? What's going on here? And what is my own issue here? And so when I kind of can sit back, I don't feel like I need to rush and give answers quickly. I think that's part of the key is not feeling like you have to give an answer right then and there and just saying, okay, well, let's talk about this and maybe we'll give you a small bit of information and then maybe give you a little bit more as we're more comfortable in doing that. But one of the issues with boundaries is, am I giving you this information or am I sharing this information because it is helping me relieve my own anxiety about what's going on? Or is it helping you, my child, relieve your curiosity or your anxiety. And so if it's the latter, then that's appropriate. But if it's the former, so if it's to relieve my own anxiety around money, then that's a problem. Mm -hmm. And so that's why it's so important to think about what is going on for me? Why is this raising my own anxiety around this? And then inappropriately sharing my feelings with my kids. So for example, my parents, I'll I'll go back and use Mm -hmm. them. Horrible markets, horrible commodity prices. Interest Um, rates. Really high interest rates were just like, you know, outrageous. And so if they would have been like, 10-year-old Christy or 7-year-old Christy, we're really anxious about this. Can you help us figure this out? Or what do you think about this? I've been like, huh? Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) And then I would absorb that anxiety. I would absorb their anxiety. And so that would have been really inappropriate. But I think that happens a lot around a lot of different issues. But money is just kind of this tricky subject that we don't really know how to talk about it, what to talk about, what's appropriate, Mm -hmm. what's inappropriate. And so I think that's a really good marker or measure like, okay, if I'm feeling anxious about this, why am I feeling anxious about this? And am I going to share this information with my child to relieve my child's anxiety or to relieve my own? Yeah, you know, that is such a good question, I guess, to ask ourselves before. And I I haven't seen it framed that way. And I think you've been touching on financial anxiety, which it shows up in our lives in so many different ways. And that's often a way we see it is like, I need to talk to someone, my five-year-old's going to listen. And and what impact is that having on them? So I really like that. Am I sharing this information to relieve my anxiety or to help the curiosity of the child? Because on the other side, what can happen if we don't share? And you, you know, children are so curious and they want to find answers. And if we don't give them the answer, presumably they're going to find an answer and it might not be the right answer. Exactly. So, it's kind of like sex ed. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to go find inappropriate or bad information. <laughs> so I guess my question is now for the kids' side is we hear that, okay, we got to figure out who is this benefiting, me or the child's curiosity. Mm-hmm. When I look at my child's curiosity around money, 
when can they start to absorb some of this information? And, and I presume it's not right at this age is exactly when you can start doing that. It's very individual, but overall, at what ages should we start having communication? Cause we know kids are watching us from three or whichever age it is. So how do we solve the child's curiosity around these money questions? Yeah. So that's a really good question. You're right on that. There's like no set age of like, this is what, what you can share at age five. And this is what you can share at age seven, et cetera. However, what we do know is that families, parents in particular are the biggest influence of what a child knows and kind of how they'll shape their own well-being. Mm-hmm. So I think it's never actually too early to start sharing. You can do simple things. A friend wrote, her name is Jamie Bossy, and she wrote a fabulous book about a dog who goes and, you know, has his allowance, he works Uh. and he gets money and then he goes and buys bacon and he has, you know, has to make these choices. So starting to share things like that at a very early age, you know, even just learning how to count money, do that at a very, very early age. Like what's the difference between a penny and a quarter and a mm. nickel? And of course, in Canada, you have different <laughs> currencies. But did you say a quarter? Uh-huh. You have quarters? I didn't know that. We have yes, quarters too. Quarters. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Have- so like 25 cent pieces. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. Look okay. how similar we are. So. <laughs> Yeah. So kind of understanding basic concepts around money and then just talking about things. My kids are super curious about our mortgage and yeah. how you pay for a house. And then so that leads to another other discussions of, oh, you know, you have to have insurance. And, you know, when you have a mortgage, you're paying interest and, you know, all of these different aspects of it. And so my son, who's the 13-year-old, he really drives a lot of these conversations because he's really, really curious. But I am really cognizant about, okay, what's appropriate to share with him? And then what's going to stress him out? I don't want to stress him out. And then what is appropriate to share with my seven-year-old? Because I don't want to stress her out either. But she's also not, her focus isn't quite as long either. And she's not quite as interested. (laughs) So, you know, there's a maturity factor that goes on there. You know your child the best. And so I think it's really important to give good, proper skills and knowledge to our children. And oftentimes we... As parents, we just don't talk about it at all because we're not confident in our own ability with our personal finance, our own, we might not feel confident in our own knowledge. We might have made some pretty big mistakes and we feel shameful or Mm -hmm. guilty about those mistakes. And um, we don't want to share that with our kids. But those can be really great learning opportunities. And depending on what it is, you know, the older they get, you know, I always tell my kids that my goal as your mom is to help create you into being an adult, <laughs> an adult that is is a successful adult. So we want you to be able to do things on your own. And so, you know, we're going to allow you to make mistakes, but we're also going to try to give you tools and skills to your best abilities. Um, You might not always like it, but that depends on their age and their maturity factors. So I think you just kind of have to gauge what is appropriate and what they can understand and comprehend. Right. So the same information that I'm going to share about like a mortgage is going to be different for my 13 year old than it is going to be for my seven year old. Mm -hmm. Like we have to pay for a house. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. To the seven year old and then more details to the 13 year old. Thank you. I really see that we always hear this spending time to get to know our kids is extremely important, but I hear this is the whole undertone of everything you're saying there and ourselves, because you first started out saying that you need to understand yourself where, again, am I saying this to relieve my own anxiety or is it to feed the curiosity of my child? So I guess to recap, I just really like that is understanding ourselves, asking that really strong question, who's this serving me or the kids? And I just have a note here of never starting too early. And I think that's a good one for everyone to hear because often we think, oh no, you can't talk about money, but that's just that old script playing in in our own lives. And I guess it's going back to step one is, am I okay with my money story and so forth? I always think about, you know, when you're on a plane and they, you know, take oxygen mask or yourself first, and then you place it on the kid. And that's kind of like taking care of your own money stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, you've got to know yourself, you got to take care of yourself so that you can 
be helpful, be a model, and to have those strong communications around money with your child so you can share that oxygen ask with them. I like how this conversation has evolved to nothing that we planned on talking about, but that's a good thing. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Do you have maybe therapeutic techniques or financial therapy techniques that people can start to try to put a distance between their I guess that stimulus in the response is Frank, Frank or Victor, 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 oh, once said in man searches for meaning, but like, how do we put that space in our reaction around money to a response? So then we can properly talk to our children around money. I mean, recently I've been hearing journaling really helps with that is to get the motions out. Is there anything else that you would recommend for parents out there around these financial anxieties that they might have so that they're not offloading them onto their children? Because I think a lot of times that's even unconsciously done. It's definitely unconsciously done. And and part of that is because we're so unconscious about money. Mm -hmm. And so why would we not be unconscious about unloading onto our children? I know you have had other people on the podcast. I know that you had Brad Klontz on a while back and talked about you know money logging. And I think all of those things are really helpful. The journaling piece can be really helpful. The automatic thought response um, can be really helpful. So when you can have something, you know, think about a word and then like this very generic, (laughs) you know, money or money and children. And then what is your automatic response to that? So we all have these automatic responses to how we think about something. They're automatic. And so we're, we're not really thinking about them, but we, when we write those down, it brings it to life. And so now it's starting to become conscious. And then it's about, you know, how do we reframe this? And so doing some of that kind of work is really helpful. I think another thing that we don't do, this is probably very taboo to say, um, but that's why I'm going to say it, yeah. <laughs> is as a society, we are associated not to talk about money to anyone else. Mm-hmm. So we don't have people that we can turn to and talk to about financial issues or how we're feeling about money. So you know, if you go to maybe a mental health therapist... You know, they might be like, I have no idea what you're talking about because they've never been trained in how to work with money and money might actually make them uncomfortable. And likewise, if you're going to a financial professional, they'll be like, I don't, I don't know what to do with your emotions no, yeah. <laughs> around money. Uh, I wasn't trained how to deal with that. And then as a society, we're not trained to talk about money within our families, with our partners or spouses. And when we do talk about it, it might turn into a huge conflict. So it just raises all this anxiety around it. And then we're not allowed to talk to our friends about it because that's private information. We don't talk about that. Mm-hmm. And so I think that encourages the anxiety and it also encourages us to avoid looking at our money story, to avoid making the unconscious conscious. And so I think it's really helpful, which, and it's really hard to find someone else to talk to. (laughs) (laughs) And then that helps you kind of recognize and think about, okay, what's appropriate to share with my kid is not necessarily the same thing that I can talk to with my best friend or with Mm -hmm. another friend or with a professional or with my spouse or my partner or with a sibling. So find somebody you can talk to and talk to them about it. I bet if you talk to a friend and you're open up about it, your friend would open up about it back and you probably would have this lovely conversation that's huge for both of you. Yeah. And so I think that we just live in this society that where we just don't talk about it with anyone and it just further creates the fuel to increase our anxiety around it. And then we do things like share inappropriate stuff with our children to help us out. Yeah. Wow. When you frame it that way, it's like we offload our stress or anxiety to our kids. Yeah, we can. Yeah. I'm not saying that everybody does and everybody is doing it inappropriately, but it certainly can lead to that. I just think sometimes it's beneficial just to to recognize that. Yeah. Like if I'm being unconscious about this, I I would assume I'm probably in some capacity leaking some of that to my children in an unintentional way. Whereas if I can just become more conscious, then those conversations to my children are a little more intentional. And I like that idea of having the ability to talk to someone about it. And I think that requires a lot of 
self-disclosure or being a little vulnerable because I know if I went out with my friends and we started chatting about money, well, first they would be curious why I want to talk to them about money because they'd be like, are you trying to pick my brain? We always have this cape on or this mask on of like, oh yeah, things are so good. Da, 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 da. But as soon as we're like, you know what? I'm struggling. I'm, I'm stressed. It's so interesting. It doesn't, it doesn't matter what you talk about really. Everyone else is like, oh, me too. I got this story. Da, 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 da. I guess the more open we are with others, I find they self-disclose as well. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It's hard work to keep up a facade. It really is hard work. It's hard work for everybody. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's so important to be able to have outlets, whether it's professional or whether it's a strong confidence that you have. It's super helpful to be able to communicate with others. So... Yeah, we got to get it out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And posting a beautiful picture on social media might not be the best to get it out. Yeah. A lot of times that's, you know, that might be covering up what's really going on. I'm putting this out there to make myself feel better about myself and to make others think that everything is fine. So we talked a little bit before you did a paper on uh, money disordered behaviors. There's maybe eight of them or something like that. I'm wondering if you could just touch on two that I think I'm going to pick on here earlier. I meant to see if you can clarify that one. You said two, let's touch on these two. You said earlier, you mentioned enmeshment and then enabling. So why don't you just touch on those? Cause those are part of the research that you did. So can you explain what is financial enmeshment? And we kind of have alluded to it in our conversation, but maybe specifically you can just touch on financial enmeshment and then financial enabling. And I guess you can go from a kid's perspective or even a spouse to spouse perspective on the enabling or however you see fit. Yeah. So thinking about enmeshment. So a lot of what we've described in the literature is really describing that kind of that inappropriate disclosure with a child. And a lot of times we see this with highly conflictual couples that can't talk about money, that it just produces a lot of conflict. Or we see it with divorced partners where money is really kind of a a sticking point. And so I communicate with my child like, hey, tell your dad that I haven't received my child support payment. So make sure he knows that I can't buy you new shoes. Well, we think we're delivering a message and actually we've just passed on our burdens, our anxiety to our child who is now carrying that for us. And they are not an adult. They are a child and then they're carrying your stuff around, your emotional stuff. Mm. And so that's an example of kind of how we've described enmeshment. Enmeshment in the family therapy literature is really that inability to separate what we talked about earlier, separate thoughts from feelings. Mm -hmm. And so when those get all tied up, And this can happen with adult relationships. When those get tied up, we have this, what can be these kind of what appear to be close relationships, but they're really kind of tense and they feel almost like too close for comfort. They're just tense and there might be resentment behind there or shaming or guilt that that keeps that close relationship bonded. So that can happen with adult children. It can happen with you know, younger children, it can happen with, um, it's just that inability to be able to separate thinking from feeling. Mm -hmm. Going into enabling, I think they actually can be tied together a little bit, but the enabling is really that inability to say no. And, Mm -hmm. you know, as a financial planner, you've probably seen this with your clients. That's one of the things that financial planners often talk about is working with their family clients and they're supporting their children um, financially at the detriment of their own well-being. And so, you know, they might be sacrificing their own retirement to be able to help their child who is having an income deficit or is, you know, lacks motivation to be working or whatever it might be to help them out so that they're not really facing super hard consequences for maybe what is their actions. So there's this inability to say no. And We sometimes think about like, okay, well, as adult children living with their parents, that's sometimes an example that's used with enabling. But, you know, sometimes that is a necessity that's helpful for both the parents and the child. The child could actually be, you know, contributing to the household Mm -hmm. in in some ways, like helping buy groceries or paying for rent, you know, you know, never know what the situation is like. Also, it's a cultural thing. You know, that's Mm -hmm. very common in a lot of 
cultures where there's multi-generations living Mm -hmm. within the same family. And so we have to put some context behind what that is. And so the, the enabling piece is really not being able to say no, not being able to set boundaries. And a lot of times it's rooted back into, I, I can't separate my, my thoughts and feelings around this money issue around this person mm-hmm. um, because they bring up these, these emotions for me. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And I, I like how you tied in that separating the emotions from our actions and the example about someone living with them is that can't universally be good or bad, you know, like you right. said, culturally, or if, I think you can go through that exercise at the start. Am I doing this because I don't want to have that hard conversation or am I doing this because, you know, this works well for me and the child? And Mm -hmm. I think that same statement or question can apply. And yeah, thanks for sharing that. And because I know, yeah, as a planner, we do see a lot of financial enabling where the words that are coming out of their mouth when they talk with us is that I want to help. I want to, you know, be there. I want to support. But what is not being said is, exactly what you just said is I'm afraid to talk to them. I don't want to cause conflict based on, I guess, some things that I've read and seen is that it, yes, it causes conflict in the enabler, but the individual getting enabled too, is that that's also could be destructive to them as well in some capacities if they're, you know, never have to do something on their own. Yeah, exactly. You know, if it's causing significant distress, you know, in daily functioning or relationships or with social relationships. I mean, that's a key indicator to say, all right, this is problematic. This is Mm -hmm. more than just, you know, I'm trying to help someone. This is causing significant distress for me, for my partner, for our family. And so it's, it's building resentment and guilt. And so there's all of these negative feelings that can come up as well. And so I think those are key indicators to also know, you know, is this really enabling or is this, am I really helping? Right. Because I want to help and I can help. So we've talked about some anxieties, how they're showing up, how they can impact our relationships. You've done a lot of work on solution-based therapy, bringing into a financial therapy world. Can you just touch on some examples that people can use for the solution-based therapy? So maybe what is solution-based therapy? And then what are some techniques that you might suggest to individuals who are experiencing this financial anxiety? Yeah, good question. I utilize a lot of solution-focused therapy, which comes from mental health side of things. It was really built very pragmatically at a clinic in Milwaukee around substance abuse. And so when it was developed back in the early 80s, these clinicians who developed this approach were really watching what works for families and individuals and how they showed successful outcomes. There's a couple of very pragmatic principles that you kind of have to buy into to utilize solution focus, whether you're a clinician or a professional who's using this approach. And by the way, it's been used in a lot of different disciplines. So anywhere from, you know, marriage and family therapy and psychology to um, nursing and business consulting. So it's been used in in a lot of different arrays And, and now with financial issues. Kind of thinking about those principles, like, you know, if it's not broken, don't fix it. If it's working, do more of it. And then it's really tapping into client strengths. So it reminds me a little bit of positive psychology. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so positive psychology comes a little bit later. I know that's something of, of huge interest to you, but there's some definitely some overlaps. Solution focus is not a theory like po- positive psychology. But I think some of the interventions and techniques and tools that are utilized are are somewhat similar to some of the positive psychology things. But um, because it's really tapping into clients' strengths, it's not ignoring what is problematic or what is um, concerning to the client, but it's utilizing what they're good at. And it's utilizing the client as an expert in their own lives. So as a planner, as a mental health clinician, I can, you know, suggest you do, you know, X, Y, and Z to, you know, help you. But if that is not going to fit within your own understanding on your own way of living, you're probably not going to do it. So I like to utilize solution focus because I am a professor and it's easier approach to teach students, but it's much harder to actually implement. So when we go from the teaching portion to the practice portion, students are almost like, oh, wow, uh, (laughs) this is a little harder than what I thought it was. 
So some of the research that we've done around solution focus is really actually focused more on goal setting. And that was, I could think probably the recent paper that you read about was really setting goals with clients. And these were clients who were coming in for like financial counseling, planning types of issues. And we sat down and we did 20 minute interviews or sessions with them and helping them develop their goals and asking them questions that were really future focused, helping them visualize what they were really hoping to get, what they were really going to be aspiring towards. And so Hallmark to solution focus is something called the miracle question. And in this study, we actually didn't utilize the miracle question. We utilized a brief version, something that was developed by a group that's called the brief group in the UK. And they asked, um, instead of the miracle question, which is very hypnotic and it's a full stage kind of set up in terms of, you know, helping people kind of relax and think about what things would look like, what their life would look like if a miracle occurred during the night. And so it's quite a lengthy process. And we didn't have that one. <laughs> we had a time constraint. So um, for this particular study. And so we utilize this briefer version and they ask, you know, what are your best hopes for whatever the issue was that the the family was coming in for? We ask, what are your best hopes for your financial future? And so, you know, we would get an array of different kinds of responses and, you know, we really help push people to think about, you know, what would this specifically look like? And really helping to build this. And then we looked at you, we asked them, you know, what are things that you're already doing that have put you on this path towards? So that's, that's really a different question than asking more problem focused. Like, why haven't you done this? Or why haven't you been budgeting? What's prevented you from doing those things? So what are the things that you are doing? We also ask scaling questions. So on a scale from zero to 10, and it had to deal with specifically something related to what they had talked about. So maybe they talked about, you know, how they would have less worry or how they would feel free. Um, There was usually some sort of underlying theme around what they were talking about that was not necessarily, you know, I would be able to pay all my bills. It might be, I would feel free or I would feel Mm. secure. So it'd be like, okay, well, on a scale from zero to 10, you know, how secure are you feeling in your financial situation? So they might say, you know, I'm a, I'm a five. And so then we would ask, okay, so why are you a five and not a four and a half? Or why are you a five and not a four? Which I think our initial inclination just, you know, outside of this approach would be, well, why are you a five and not a six? Yeah. But when you ask a client, why are you a five and not a four and a half? or a four, then you're asking them to identify what it is that they're doing Mm -hmm. to get them closer. Mm -hmm. And then are those things, things that they can do more of or continue to do to keep them moving up on the scale? And so then it's also asking them, you know, like, what is it that you can do this week? What can you do today? You know, you walk out of here, what can you do today or this week? Something that's really immediate So that they're thinking, you know, not grandiose, but reasonable and relevant to get them to move from a five to a five and a half. Mm -hmm. And so we're okay with really small steps because small steps can then lead to much higher numbers on that scale. And so it's okay if it's slow. In fact, we're going to encourage clients to go slow um, so that they'll actually implement the things that are working for them. And so then they have to brainstorm and you might have to brainstorm with them um, in terms of, you know, what it was. So what we saw from that study is, you know, just after 20 minutes, we did kind of a pre-test and a post-test immediately following. We didn't have any follow-ups later on due to the the design and um, logistics of it. But we saw uh, clients' distress decrease immediately. And we saw that they would be more likely to go seek out a financial advisor because of it too. And so I think that that was really helpful and understanding like, okay, recognizing your own strengths and what you're doing is huge when it comes to financial anxiety. So we specifically looked at financial anxiety. 
And that significantly decreased the financial anxiety just after 20 minutes. So if people can continue to do that, is that going to be helpful? Yeah. So that's kind of the the summary of that particular study. Yeah. And I'll include that summary in the show notes. And I mean, 20 minutes and you're having such positive results. I think that's incredible. And it sounds like what it's really, it's building that self-confidence or that Mm self-efficacy in the individual so that they have the strength to go forward. I will definitely put that paper in because it's a really good approach to take to not just money, many things, this solution. Oh, yeah. It's a great approach. And, you know, I it was set up for like financial therapists or financial planners to be utilizing with their clients. This particular study was. But those are questions that you can ask yourself. You know, you can gauge yourself, you know, on a scale from zero to 10. How is my anxiety about this particular issue? And if it's an eight, why, you know, why is it an eight and, you know, not a nine if it's I, you know? Mm-hmm. And so that's a one way that us as individuals, and I have these conversations in my, my own head, how is it that I'm feeling? And scaling questions can be helpful to us to kind of alert, like, are we on one end or the other? Are we kind of in the middle of the road? And what do we do with that information? Mm-hmm. And what's something I can do right now to mm-hmm. help me? And you know, that statement there, what can I do right now? Just reminds me of somewhere I wrote down, but you talked about hope and like, Mm -hmm. if I can do something right now, then I can grasp onto this hope versus, you know, feeling defeated. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I've had some other people say like, oh, my paper was geared towards like financial planners and things like that. I find as consumers, like they're delivering this, like financial planners are intended to deliver to consumers. So exactly. I find consumers, these are great articles to read because, you know, your advisor might not be reading it. And predominantly our listeners are consumers, not advisors. So I think it's still great to read those articles. Yeah. I want to be mindful of your time. And so four minutes left. I got one last question that you probably have seen from uh, from your guys' work, but it's been adapted from a different variations. But this is a question for you now. Well, all of them have, but it's about you. Uh, oh. <laughs> yeah. Um, let's say you're 90 years old. You're sitting on that front porch looking back at, at your life that you've created. It doesn't matter where you are. Actually, it really matters where you are. Somewhere that brings you peace and you're just at ease. Life is coming to an end. And if you had to write a letter to your children's children about what you learned on aspiring to create a successful relationship with money, what would you say to them? Ooh, that's good. I think I would probably emphasize talking openly with their partners about money and openly as appropriate with their children because If they don't, then there's so much anxiety, not only individually, but relational conflict that comes up that can actually cut off relationships. And it can be so destructive that I think I would really emphasize that relational piece that we utilize money as as something that, you know, gets us from here to there. Um, I've heard it referenced as, you know, I, and I sometimes reference this as a tool. And so it's something that it's there. We all have it. We all have to use it. Some people might have more, some people have less, but it's so important to be open and to have that open communication around money, around your goals, around your plans, um, not just for yourself, but with your partner and with your family. Perfect. Thank you. I appreciate you sharing your thoughts, your wisdom on that question and the entire interview. So you've written a couple, co-authored with a couple books. Uh, one, Financial Therapy. I can see it like right there. I can see it too. Yeah. I like it. <laughs> so why don't you just touch on that book? And then is there any other book? There doesn't need to be another book that kind of would go in alignment with what we've been talking about today that you'd recommend for uh, listeners. Hmm. There's quite a few books. I always think books is hard because there's a lot of them out there. So many. Yeah, there's so many. And I know I haven't read all of them or nearly enough of them. So I think that the financial therapy book, which is the one that you have on your bookcase. So that is kind of written as it's a little bit like a textbook, but it's a great book to understand money scripts, money Mm. disorders, a lot of the different approaches and modalities that can be utilized to help intervene, whether it's from an emotional level, a cognitive level, a behavioral level, or relational aspect. 
And so all of those, you can intervene at any different of those levels and help clients create effective change. And so there's those in there. But other books, and I'm thinking like consumer-wise, a lot of it just is coming to my mind Mm -hmm. is Axton Bates-Hamilton's book about her story. It's about her story, Financial Abuse, by her mother. And it's such an interesting... It's listed as a true crime, and I kind of like true crime stories. (laughs) (laughs) And so... It's done in a way that you can kind of grasp the, the understanding, but also look at, you know, how some uh, like mental illness, a mental health really has an impact on family dynamics and also has an impact on financial abuse and how that can occur in a family. And no one else might know outside right. of the family and have huge ramifications mm-hmm. as an adult. And so I think it brings awareness You know, a lot of it is, you know, boundary setting or the lack Mm. of boundary setting that was done by the parents in this family. There's so many themes that come up. I think it's like something that I'm really feeling bad. That's (laughs) no, no. uh, with the name of the book, uh, but, no, uh, no. the less people, the less people know. I think, or something Let's, like yeah, that. Yeah, no worries. I the, the wonderful thing about Google, it, it is yes, yes. And I should know the name of that book right off the top of my head, and I'm just not coming up with it. Less people know, I think. Well, that's Google. That's excellent, and I think that fits very well with our conversation of today. Yes, it does. I think it fits very well. It's it's something that I have recently read. And it's just one of those things that is just kind of on my mind. And Family Christmas, we were talking about what are books that have been mm. kind of, you know, inspirational for you. And my mom, she read this book also after I had told her about it. Oh. And she said, you know, that book is kind of stuck with me. Uh-huh. <laughs> and so it's not necessarily inspiration, but it is really interesting. And it is somewhat inspirational in terms Mm -hmm. of what resilience looks like Mm. and how you can overcome. So I guess it does have those elements in it, but it's, it kind of brings all of those pieces together. Great. I will definitely put that in the show notes. I feel like a future podcast slash case study episode would be your mom and dad and yourself talking about money stories. (laughs) (laughs) They'd probably be like, I don't know. (laughs) All right. Well, Dr. Archuleta, thank you so much for spending this time with us. We really appreciate it. And I can't thank you enough. All right. Well, thank you so much for having me. This was a great time. I enjoyed it. Thank you for tuning in this week. If you're enjoying conversations like the one today with Dr. Christy Archuleta, please head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review and or both a rating. It really helps bring great guests back on the show. Until next time, have a great day.